the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation, John and Bonnie Nystrom with us. They, of course, have been engaged with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And uh, we're down in Papua New Guinea back in 1998 when an earthquake struck, the ensuing tsunami, literally in some cases uh, producing waves that were 30 feet high, rolled ashore. And, I mean, imagine wiping out half the population. Uh, and then people that have so very little to begin with being left with absolutely nothing. And as I point out, John, uh, FEMA doesn't show up. The military doesn't ride into town and and help people uh, in the aftermath of a disaster like this. Folks are pretty much left on their own, aren't they? Well, to a certain extent, yes. But the, the nearest village to them um, hosted them for the next few months while material aid came in and food aid came in. A new road was built through that village so things could be brought in. So some aid did come. But probably the most helpful thing that happened was the churches got together and got a counseling program together to help people through their grief. And one of the best things they did was to have people write down their stories of what happened that night, stories about the people who... Um, who they um, knew who were involved in the tsunami, who died, their relatives and friends. And one of those who um, wrote a story during that time was Pastor Peter Marokiki, a good friend of ours who works on the Bible translation as well. And his firsthand account of that night of the tsunami, trying to um, rescue people, trying to save his own family, trying to find his kids who were lost in the darkness after the waves hit, his story about all of that became the basis for the first chapter of our book. And um, another great thing that happened as a result of that is we started thinking completely differently about how we do um, the Bible Translation Project. Before the tsunami, some of the languages in the area, too, that were nearby and the east and west of us had been asking us for help with the um, Bible translation in their language. And I would say, well, you know, Bible translation is done one language at a time. We need to finish in Arup first, the, the, language, the village we were living in, the language we were working in. And then maybe we can help you. Maybe, you know, it might be another decade before we can do that. Wow. But at, right after the tsunami, Bonnie and I and the three Arup translators who had survived, we went, the whole team, we went from, there's no way we can help these nearby languages to we have to find a way to help them. And uh, that's where the, the real story begins of how the Lord t- took this terrible tragedy and as a result we're now working in 11 languages instead of just one and that 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 way of doing translation turns out to be a much better way to do translation not only to get better quality but lots more languages are getting um, the bible because of what happened and are you seeing this also in terms of opening up doors? I mean, when people are literally devastated with nothing, uh, we run out of ourselves and suddenly we start turning and we start looking for answers. Uh, did this open up the doors to Bonnie in terms of a greater ability to, to, to reach those within the island and share the gospel? Uh, yes, in fact, that was um, that was the motivation for the Arab translators 
to uh, to actually expand the project. We said, you know, your translation could be done in a couple of years. I think at that time we were predicting five years or so. You, we could be done, and then we could help them. And they said, no, we have to do this now. People's eyes are opened, and by that they meant people are asking questions. They want to know why this happened. They they want to understand, and now is the time to, to do this um, while people still are are motivated to, um, to participate. So that um, motivation then brought in these other languages as John already said we started the new translation project and and people were able to um, start with uh, basic portions of scripture and start looking at um, what Jesus said uh, the first book we translated that's been published now was the book of Luke and in in that um, book Jesus says that you know you you will see trouble there's no there's no promise of a of a trouble free life in fact um, there are questions in there about about uh, people who uh, tower who fell and and things like that and and Jesus just says you know bad things happen but it's important for you to pay attention to your own life and to repent of your own sins the back side of the story talk to us about um, that sense of how God has had his hands throughout all of this we are the better part now of uh, what is it uh, 14 years after all of this transpired looking back on all of this and what God has done in and through this disaster over the uh, now decades since then how have things changed well, the, the the best part of what's happening is that so many more people are getting God's word in their language. And just to give you an example, we, one of the men from one of those languages that had come and asked us for help that we were putting off, he took some. This man took some scripture in his own language home, read it to his family, and his daughter said, "Daddy, this is so delicious. Delicious, isn't that isn't that a?" great description of what God's word is to us when it speaks clearly to us in our own language. But that's not all she said. She also said, she said, Daddy, this is so delicious. Can you bring us some more? Can you bring us some more? That's what what we're doing is all about. Making God's word available to more people in more languages sooner. Not just in this project, but but all over the world. You know, there are there are Bible translation projects underway in about 2,000 languages around the world, and Wycliffe's involved in about 1,500 of them or so, and another 500 are being conducted by partners of ours, and um, it's an awesome time to be alive to see so many people getting God's Word in their language for the very first time. Well, and the amazing thing is then, too, we're seeing so much fulfillment of, of prophecy in that sense, in, in with yes. regards to uh, uh, the gospel being so widespread, and uh, that every tribe and tongue would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language. Toward that end, if you would, just spend a moment, uh, John and Bonnie, talking a bit about the ministry of Wycliffe. Uh, Folks have heard the name. They might kind of at the periphery be uh, familiar with what the ministry does, what the organization does. But just spend a moment, if you would, and kind of give us a thumbnail sketch of the work of, of Wycliffe Bible translators around the world. Sure. Wycliffe exists to see that everybody has an opportunity to have the Word of God in the language that's most meaningful to them. And we do that by partnering with other with other groups who are also interested in getting God's Word into people's languages, and that's what we're all about. And as I said, we, we're involved currently in about 1,500 or so languages around the world. 
And there are lots of ways to be involved as well. You know, there at your radio station, there's a whole lot of people that surround you in order for your show to go on the air. And that's the way it is with Bible translation. There's some people who are out uh, in villages and facilitating Bible translation to happen, but there's a whole network of people um, around the world um, back in their home countries and on the field that are part of that process. One of the things that um, we believe as Wycliffe is that, that prayer is actually the first step to any language community getting the Bible. And there's a, Wycliffe has a, uh, a program called the Bibleist People's Prayer Project, BP3. And if you go to Wycliffe.org, you can learn more about the Wycliffe ministry, but you can also learn how you could pick a, a people group that still does not have the scripture and start praying for them. And, um, and perhaps in your lifetime, even see that translation work started and maybe even finished. And uh, your work down there in Papua New Guinea, how, how have things progressed? Well, last, Bonnie mentioned that last year we published Luke. This year we're publishing Acts in several languages. Right now, the translators, uh, as we speak, it's uh, Wednesday morning there, and they are working on uh, the book of First Timothy, and uh, that's a great thing for pastors since it's a letter from a pastor to a young pastor. And we hope to be publish some of the pastoral epistles next summer. Folks want to get more information. Um, there's a link, I'm assuming, to the Wycliffe website through uh, sleepingcoconuts.com? There sure is. That's right. Sleepingcoconuts.com is the best place to go. For um, There's a one-minute video trailer about the book, and there's also a link if people are interested in buying the book. And uh, there's a link to Wycliffe there as well. And uh, it's uh, been a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate you having us on. It's, uh, we love telling our story. We love telling about all the amazing things the Lord has done and uh, lifting up his name in that way. Well, we sure appreciate you spacing some time uh, with us tonight, uh, John and Bonnie, and sharing your story. You know, I'm reminded of an experience I had number of years ago in the interior of China and uh, gathering with a group of fellow Christians there. And we met this man in kind of a a nondescript location. Uh, A number of us gathered together uh, that were uh, traveling broadcast journalists from the United States, and uh, we were there with some missionaries and so forth, working in the deep in the interior of uh, communist China. And uh, one gentleman that we met came in, and I remember him wearing uh, flip flops or the shower shower shoes and a pair of jeans and a jacket that was kind of dirty. And he sat there very quietly uh, and listening to the conversation. And folks were taking turns. Sharing about their work and what they were doing, and some were pastors, and some were teachers and evangelists and whatnot. And finally, got around to this gentleman, and his story unfolded. It turns out that um, he had been called of God about 25 years ago to undertake translating the Scripture from uh, Mandarin Chinese. Uh, into his particular people group's language, of which there were only about 800 people. But he was persuaded of God that they had the right and the need to be able to read God's word in their own language. And so he went through the tedious process of doing the translation and finally completed do so. Uh, They got the printing plates put together and began publishing and the communist authorities found out they came in, they destroyed all the printing plates, gathered every copy of the scripture they could get their hands on, burned it, put this man in jail. Three years later, he's released from jail. And that impression of the Holy Spirit, of the importance of this people group having God's word in their language, had not 
grown any softer. In fact, it was stronger even more so following what the Chinese communist authorities did. So he set about translating all over again, and he went through the entire process again, many, many, many years of of labor at all of this, and finally completed the task of getting the scriptures together and getting the printing plates done and went into the process of beginning to do the publication and you probably know where the story is going, yes. The officials found out once again destroyed all the copies they could get their hands on, put him in jail, this time for even longer time. And by the time we met him, he had been out of jail only about a year and a half and was in the process of starting all over again. Now, I can't have fathom what it would be to translate Genesis to Revelation from, say, English into Italian let alone to go through this process twice over, spend jail time for being involved in this, and yet be so persuaded of the importance of God's word, read by your own people in their own language, that he was willing to dedicate more of his life. And literally, this is all this man has done, is translate. It's all he's really done. Over the course of 25-something years, I would suspect by now that he's finished that translation and would pray God that uh, this time around the printing plates survive. But I think it's demonstrative of the importance of what it means that when God puts a a burden on your heart, when you have fallen in love with Jesus through his word, what it means to have God's word in your own language. And a lot of us don't relate because... How many Bibles do you have at home? Five? Six? Ten copies? Oh, you got the one that you keep in the bathroom. You got the one by the nightstand. You got the big fancy one that, you know, has got all the birth dates and the wedding dates and so forth that sits under a pile of dust underneath the coffee table. Then you've got the one that sits in the car. Then you have your one in your purse or maybe in your briefcase. Then you've got, of course, the the comparative ones because sometimes you can't really understand what's being said. And so you like to be able to look at four different versions side by side. Then you've got the study Bible and on and on the list goes. Five, ten copies maybe more, and some people in some parts of the world have zero. Not because they don't want one, but because none exist. And so goes the story of the work of the Wycliffe Bible Translators. We appreciate so much John and Bonnie being with us tonight. We pray for your ministry. Thanks so much for taking some time to spend the evening here. Sleeping Coconuts, and again, the book available through the website. More information, too, about Wycliffe at sleepingcoconuts.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Lots of exciting things going on in the arena of science. And most recently, of course, the, the big announcement of the successful landing of Curiosity um, on the planet of Mars and the amazing photographs it has begun to send back. And no doubt this is going to do much in terms of adding to our understanding of planets and the cosmos and so forth. Uh, more recently, uh, interesting confirmation of a Peter Higgs so-called God particle. He first came up with the concept back in 1964, and recently our friends up at Cal. As much as some Christians kind of shy away from the notion of science with the feeling that it kind of gets in the way of the truth of Scripture, my next guest, in fact, would suggest that there's much about science that confirms what we read in Scripture. Um, his CV, if I if I detail it all here, we wouldn't have enough time on the program. He has a Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. 
He is the president and founder of Reasons to Believe, best-selling author of books such as The Fingerprint of God, The Genesis Question, The Creator, and The Cosmos. His newest book, an interesting title, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, how the oldest book in the Bible answers today's scientific questions. And Dr. Hugh Ross, a delight to have you back on the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, Hugh, first, if we can, just kind of your your thoughts on some of these uh, more recent news developments. Of course, your background as an astrophysicist, I would imagine you're, you've got uh, great interest in following what's been going on, for example, with the recent landing of that Mars rover uh, just last week. Yes, and uh, I've been in uh, print since 1988 and predicting that the remains of life will be found on all solar system bodies for the simple reason that Earth has been so prolific with life for such a long period of time uh, that meteors have struck the Earth in sufficient abundance as to transport Earth soil to all solar system bodies. In fact, I got an opportunity to speak at NASA Houston a few years back where I said, we really need to target the moon as opposed to Mars. Because on the surface of Mars, we only have about 200 pounds of Earth soil for every 100 square kilometers. But on the moon, it's nearly 20,000 tons. And moreover, unlike Mars, the moon has had very little geological activity over its history. And when it comes to planet Earth, the fossils of Earth's first life have been destroyed by Earth's geology. We don't have those fossils. All we have is an isotope signature of Earth's first life. But we can literally go to the moon and recover the fossils of Earth's first life and establish who got it right on the origin of life, the Christians or the atheists. Amazing. So we, we, we find yeah, fur, further evidence of, of our own um, uh, lifespan here on Earth by going to other planets. Well, I mean, we can recover the fossils of Earth's first life by going to Mars, but uh, there's a good likelihood that they've been damaged beyond recognition. Uh, why I'm opting for the moon is that calculations already show us uh, that the fossils of Earth's first life arrived there uh, on low collision velocity uh, trajectories and therefore should be available in pristine form. And uh, the Christian model predicts that those fossils will be equally complex to the simplest life on planet Earth today. The atheists predict it would be orders of magnitude simpler. They also predict one species only, whereas the Christian model would predict that we should see a suite of species uh, with different uh, biochemical uh, metabolic uh, structures set up. We can literally go to the moon and prove who got it right. And you can do the same thing on Mars, but frankly, I don't think instruments like Curiosity have the technical capability to really do the job. We'd have to send something much more sophisticated, whereas going to the moon, it'd be quite easy uh, to recover those fossils and bring them back to Earth for detailed analysis. And that analysis, then, as you're suggesting, Dr. Ross, has the capability, has the capacity of being able to differentiate between what they might would see as uh, particles that relate back to Earth as opposed to particles that are natural to the moon. Well, that's it. I mean, uh, you've got many in NASA saying that life may have originated indigenously on Mars. If that's the case, we expect to see a different signature uh, in those uh, fossils and um, molecular structure than we see in Earth life. And so it's relatively routine uh, to see whether the creationists or the evolutionists uh, got the origin of life model right by literally going to places like Mars and the Moon. But I'm saying it'd be a lot easier to do on the Moon than to do on Mars. 
I make reference to uh, the recent conversations coming out of uh, the University of California at Berkeley that uh, have kind of underscored some of the research that was done clear back in the early 1960s by Peter Higgs regarding the so-called God God particle. Can you comment, uh, Dr. Ross, on the the recent uh, information coming out of UC Berkeley on the same? Yes, I think there's a good likelihood that the Higgs boson has been discovered. Uh, to really uh, fine-tune our particle creation models, however, we're going to need a fairly accurate measure of the mass of the Higgs boson. Uh, that still needs to happen. Uh, but the Large Hadron Collider has the capability of, of actually doing that. So let's wait a few more years, and, and then I think we can actually look forward to something much more exciting uh, than the mere discovery. Uh, but if you go to our reasons.org website, I wrote a series of uh, five articles on our feature called Today's New Reason to Believe, and it's about a year ago, uh, where I talked about two other particles, axions and sterile neutrinos, that in my opinion deserve the title the God Particles much more so than the Higgs boson. Uh, the discovery of those two particles, number one, can be done fairly cheaply. In fact, I suggest in the articles I wrote that astronomers probably have already discovered both particles. And with additional measurements, we could actually measure the characteristics of both sterile neutrinos and axions. And that would really uh, bolster the Christian model for the creation of the universe and the creation of the particles. So I'm really anticipating uh, what astrophysics and particle physics in combination can really do uh, to build a much stronger case for a biblical creation model. If you've just joined our conversation, we're visiting today with well-known astrophysicist, Christian apologist, and of course the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Hugh Ross. Information, by the way, as he mentioned on the website at reasons.org. That's reasons.org. Now, we're going to come back after a brief time out and talk about Dr. Ross's latest book. We typically turn to the book of Genesis for answers considering the origins of man and things of this sort. But how about the notion of turning to one of the oldest books in the Bible to find today's answers for scientific questions? We'll get to that part of our discussion. Best-selling author, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross here on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, thank you, sir. We are back here, and we invite you to join us with thoughts and comments for astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, president and founder of Reasons to Believe. His new book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Now, I'm curious. We typically think of uh, Genesis as a great place to start in terms of finding answers related to uh, the origins of man, today's scientific questions, things of that sort. What led you, Dr. Ross, to begin exploring these questions and their ultimate answers inside the book of Job, a book that most of us I think generally just kind of regard as a book largely about suffering. Well, it is a book about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering, but of all the books of the Bible, it contains the most content about creation and science. And I think for good reason, because there's internal evidence in the book of Job that it's the first book that was given to humanity of all the Bible's books. I mean, you see references uh, in the book of Job to a patriarchal sacrificial system, which means it must have predated the time of Moses. It's also written as an easily memorized uh, poem, and therefore it indicates that it was probably uh, given to humanity before Hebrew became a written language. 
He also noticed that text was devoid of any references to nations, uh, merely just uh, towns and city-states. So given that it is the first book uh, given to humanity of all the Bible's books, we shouldn't at all be surprised that it lays the foundation for creation. And the other thing that caught my attention is just how much Moses leaves out about creation chronology uh, in Genesis uh, 1 through 11. And the stuff that he leaves out that's really crucial is material that's already described in the book of Job. So the fact that Moses uh, edited his material on creation and built on the foundation that's already in Job, I think, again, argues that we need to take a fresh look at the book of Job, not only as a book that deals with evil and suffering, uh, but also a book that lays the foundation uh, for creation theology. So the notion here, Doctor, if we take this all in proper and appropriate chronological order, while some might try to be dismissive, in a way, of the Genesis account because of the so-called gaps that are in there. For example, the big time gap from uh, creation of the universe to formation of Earth. And folks will kind of say, well, because of all of that, we don't understand what was going on. That must have been left out because there was no answer. In reality, what you're suggesting is it would have been repetitive because a lot of the gaps and, and items, the key items within the timeline, actually appear in an earlier writing, the book of Job. Exactly. I mean, Job is the one that addresses what God was doing between creating the universe and forming the earth. So there's no need for Moses to cover that again. Walk us through some of the highlights, if you would. I don't want to give away the entire punchline of the book, but in terms of, of some of the highlights of the revelations that you found working through the pages of the book of Job and some of, in terms of some of the, the key uh, mile markers, so to speak, in creation. Well, I think what really got my attention is how much of the creation content in the book of Job deals with the second origin of life. I mean, you look at Genesis chapter 1, there are three separate origins of life. Uh, Creation day one is when God creates life that's physical, purely physical in its form. But in creation day five, God creates the soulish animals. Animals that are not only physical, but soulish, and that they manifest mind, will, and emotions, and are capable of forming relationships, not only with one another, but with a higher species, namely us human beings. And last of all, God creates the one and only species, human beings, the descendants of Adam and Eve, uh, that can relate to God himself. And it was Job that said in the 12th chapter, look to these soulish animals, look to the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and they will teach you lessons about yourself and lessons about God. And so as you get into, say, chapters 37, 38, 39, all the way to 42, uh, what you notice is a theme that as you examine these birds and mammals, you can see how strongly they are motivated to relate to human beings and serve and please human beings. Well, we're designed the same way. We're also designed and highly motivated to serve a higher being, namely God himself, uh, and to serve and to please him. Uh, And likewise, when we look at these birds and mammals, we can see the degree to which human sin and abuse has crippled the ability of these birds and mammals to relate to us and serve and please us. Instead of coming to us, often they run away in fear because they know what we're going to do to them. Well, likewise, the sin within us has damaged our ability to come to God and to serve and please Him. So in many respects, these birds and mammals are placed by God here in this planet, not only to further our well-being 
and launching and sustaining civilization and serving and pleasing us, but also teaching us critical spiritual lessons about ourselves and about the problems we have in trying to relate to God. And the thing I've noticed as I've traveled around the world in my speaking ministry is you don't find atheists in the country. You find them in cities. And in cities, people are exposed to what man has created. But when you're out there in the countryside, you're exposed to what God has created. And therefore, I think that offers a good explanation why rural individuals uh, believe in God, whereas many that live in cities, where they're cut off from contact with the birds and mammals, opt for agnosticism or atheism. I, I frequently uh, pondered in places like the Yosemite Valley, for example, or or up in the beautiful mountains of Lake Tahoe, or other parts of, of the splendor of uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, how it is that someone can look at this and come to the conclusion that uh, it was the... Uh, the organization out of chaos resulting from the Big Bang uh, as a means of being dismissive of God's handiwork in all of this. Well, I've often taken scientists out into the high Sierras, for example, and get them out into a subalpine meadow and just say, you know, what do you think of this place? And they just say, the beauty is awesome. I said, how do you explain that awesome beauty? And it's a wonderful opportunity to introduce them to the God that created it all. Whereas when you're stuck in some office in a big city, uh, often uh, people don't have that kind of response. We lean quite heavily, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Ross, on the Genesis account for uh, uh, how the world came to be. And certainly there, there are lots of details in there. And yet, from what you're suggesting, as you work through the creation miracles um, in Job 38... 37, 39, it seems as if we could more accurately put perhaps that we get more details about man's fall in Genesis and more details about the creation of the universe and specifically Earth and the preparation of same to sustain life in the book of Job. Is that a fair uh, conclusion? It is. I think both points are valid. I mean, uh, for example, when you go through the creation days in Genesis 1, it implies that God created the sun before he went through his activity the six days. Um, you know, where, for example, it says in Genesis creation day one, let there be light. doesn't say that God created the light or made the light. uses the Hebrew verb hayah, let there be light. And in creation day four, the text says, let there be the great lights. Again, it doesn't say he created them or made them, let them be. And uh, what you notice on Creation Day 4 this is the first time that the atmosphere goes from being permanently overcast to at least occasionally transparent. And uh, what does verse 15 say? It says, so that the creatures would now have signs to mark seasons, days, and years. Bacteria and insects don't need to have that information, but the higher animals do. But when you go to Job 38, verses 8 and 9, it makes it really explicit that it's dark on the surface of the waters in the context of the events before creation day one, not because there was no sun or stars, but because God had blanketed the seas of the earth with cloud layers that prevented the light that came through. Mm. Uh, Job 38, 9 and 10 makes the point, or February 8 and 9, uh, that God had blanketed the seas with clouds, and those blankets kept the seas dark. So where Genesis 1 implies that it's dark in the beginning because of the Earth's cloud layer, uh, notice that Job 38 is explicit. 
and identifying the clouds as the cause of the darkness rather than the lack of the light of the sun, moon, and stars. And so that allows you to look at Genesis 1 and say, okay, in the beginning, Earth had an opaque atmosphere, creation day one, the atmosphere became translucent where light could pass through, but it's still overcast, and on creation day four, the atmosphere gets transformed again from being translucent to transparent. And that relieves Genesis 1 of the most major ridicule uh, of its accuracy uh, from scientific uh, skeptics. Part of the challenge here, perhaps, that we are trying to think of this in a very linear, a traditional linear fashion, uh, I would relate it to maybe, I don't know, the assembly line uh, making automobiles. And that we would somehow believe that you have to begin most naturally and logically with the chassis, a frame, uh, the wheelbase, and then upon which you'll put the interior, you'll install the motor, you'll install the transmission. There, there's a very specific linear fashion in which all of this takes place to wind up with an automobile. It would be kind of foolhardy to suggest get the whole vehicle put together and then once having done so, install the interior. That would just seem to be contrary. Have we kind of tried to force God into a very linear fashion according to our own thinking? Well, the text does say that we are created in the image of God, so we shouldn't be surprised that the way we create and design things is similar to how God does. And, you know, God could do it all at once, or he could use a step-by-step method. And uh, Genesis 1, uh, by using the structure of the six creation days, tells us it's step-by-step. And likewise, Job 38 and 39 uh, establishes it step by step. And from a human perspective, we realize that's the most efficient way to create or design anything. And uh, therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, God being the kind of God, perfect God that he is, uh, uses the most efficient process available uh, to create and design. Uh, But one of the things I think we need to appreciate is that the Bible is a collection of 66 books not just one book, and that uh, if you go through the 66 books of the Bible, you find over two dozen chapter length or longer uh, texts that deal with creation. And therefore, what we uh, searchers of truth need to do is actually examine all the creation texts in the Bible and interpret them as consistently and literally as possible. But I would argue a great place to begin is the book of Job, and then build in Genesis 1 through 11, as well as uh, Proverbs 8, uh, Psalm 104, uh, Psalm 147 and 148, uh, the creation chapters in Isaiah, uh, and then go on into the text in Romans and Revelation. And if you go on our website at reasons.org, we actually list every major creation text in the Bible. And we do that to encourage people to integrate consistently across all of God's revelation. If you've just joined our conversation today, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross with a Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. He, of course, is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. His latest book called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, uh, the oldest book in the Bible, answers today's scientific questions. When we come back, uh, we'll talk a bit more about the creation miracles of Job 37, 38, and 39, and look, too, at the ten animals of Job. I'm Craig Roberts. Our conversation with astrophysicist and best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
We're talking this evening with best-selling author and astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, How the Oldest Book in the Bible Answers Today's Scientific Questions. Dr. Ross, typically we see, in addition to uh, some of the naysayers that will look at the gaps in time in the Genesis account and say, here, there you go, because it's not all explained, therefore it can't be true. There are also some of the naysayers that will look at so-called bad designs in nature, maybe better put uh, faulty or what we would consider to be useless, like, for example, what exactly does the appendix do? Uh, And we'll look at this and say that this is a reason to believe that the because it's not a perfect design, therefore it can't be God's design. What do you say to that? Well, you know, these uh, so-called crippled designs are a great way to test our different creation evolution beliefs. I mean, uh, you know, maybe we haven't looked hard enough for the purpose or the design of, say, the appendix. When I was a child, uh, medical scientists felt that the appendix was completely useless. And so if you ever had abdominal surgery, they would routinely remove the appendix because of their belief that it was a holdover from an evolutionary accident. Today, we know that the appendix plays no role in human digestion, but it plays a critical role in the immune response system. So today, medical doctors do not remove the appendix unless it's inflamed. And likewise, useless organs uh, such as the adenoids and tonsils were once thought to play no, no purpose or role in the human body. And uh, now we recognize that they, too, play a role in the human immune response system. So sometimes the design is in a different area than what we would never normally anticipate. And so here's the way you can put it to the test. Okay, if God's responsible for this, then we would expect that everything within the human body or everything within the cell uh, would have some purpose or function. And maybe we don't know what it is right now, but let's uh, continue to search. And if we find increasing evidence for design and function as we learn more and more uh, about uh, different organisms' morphology and uh, their biomolecular structure, then that would be evidence that God was responsible for that. But if we find as we learn more and more, and we're finding more and more junk and more and more crippled designs, then that would be evidence that, uh, that, hey, it's some kind of natural evolutionary explanation. Now, there's one important caveat. We would expect that there would be a small amount of, um, uh, quote, uh, useless function uh, in response to how long an organism has been on the face of the earth. Because after all, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that the entire creation is subject to the law of decay. And so that law of decay will bring about some crippling of the divine designs. But in the case of the human species, we've been here for such an incredibly brief period of time that we would expect very little accumulation of, quote, junk as a result of the second law of thermodynamics. So perhaps less emphasis on uh, the evolution of man and a little bit more patience and more focus on the evolution of our understanding is a better way to approach some of this. Well, we would expect that a lot of the design would be hidden from view because we haven't looked. That's the principle you see in both Job and the creation texts and Psalms. Namely, that the more we examine the record of nature, the more we'll discover the handiwork of God. And so medical science is a great example of how that has exactly played out. 
part of this uh, discovery process, you spend some time, uh, some fair amount of time inside the pages of hidden treasures in the book of Job to the lessons of the animals, the so-called ten animals of Job. Uh, in our time that remains, a doctor, spend a moment and kind of shed some light on that for us. Well, that's something that aroused my curiosity when I first began to examine the book of Job, is why do we see this list of ten specific bird and mammal species in Job 38 and 39? You know, it's kind of like a top ten list. And so as I began to study the animals that are mentioned in the text, I realized every one of them played a crucial role in launching human civilization. And that uh, those people groups that lacked access to those animals were never able to get themselves out of the Stone Age culture. Uh, but those cultural groups that had access to those animals were not only able to launch civilization, but to advance it significantly. And I think in the 21st century, we often think, hey, we did it all. But the truth is, we would have gotten nowhere if God hadn't given us these specific bird and mammal species and if we uh, hadn't really taken the time to tame them and begin to, to use them, uh, not only to launch our civilization, but also gain some measure of peace and enjoyment from our relationships with them. And I think what's really phenomenal, too, is you look at creatures uh, you know, like the ostrich uh, or the goat uh, or the donkey or the horse, uh, what we're realizing is they not only fulfilled a critical role in launching human civilization, they are fulfilling a completely different role in assisting humanity towards the end of civilization when we have global high-tech uh, technology. Uh, so goats, for example, are serving a very different purpose today than they did at the beginning of civilization. And the fact that these creatures have multiple uh, ways of serving and pleasing humanity uh, to deal with humanity in different cultural contexts, that is, to me, a clear piece of evidence for the fingerprint of God in designing these creatures for our specific benefit. Final word, you spent some time on a key point. We began our conversation with curiosity on the topic of why pick the book of Job, since it uh, in large part is regarded as many as almost singularly a book about suffering, to be sure that it is. But at the end, you also make an interesting conclusion inside the pages of Hidden Treasures in the book of Job, and that is how the book overall points to man's greatest need. Elaborate on that point. Well, uh, what God does is he talks about these animals that he gave to serve and please us and makes the point that we humans have been able to tame every one of them. And he mentions the Leviathan and the Behemoth as the two most difficult to tame of all the bird and mammal species and higher reptiles that God gave us. But he says there's one species you're not able to tame, and that is a proud human heart. And God steps in and says, only I can bring humility to a proud human being. You can't do it. And makes the point that we all struggle with pride, and without God's help, we're not going to overcome that pride. And just like these animals need to come to us, we need to go to God and get the humility we need in order to form a relationship with Him and successful relationships with one another. So what I love about the book of Job, the last few chapters close with a clear gospel message of how we can develop a successful relationship with our Creator. And if you look at Job's comments, he actually lays out from the evidence of nature all the critical points uh, for salvation, concluding in verse 9 in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that I will see him on the last day uh, with my own eyes and my own flesh. Why? Because Job 
recognized his need for a Savior and a Redeemer, and had committed his life to that uh, divine Redeemer. Taking us deeper toward the answers that we seek in the creation of man, a look at today's scientific questions answered inside the book of Job, the new book, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, newly published by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the entire Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Our guest, its author, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross, as always, delight to have you on the program. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.